0: I would say as a sales leader uh, in Southeast Asia, it's not enough to just do sales. You have to think pretty holistically about how the entire organization has to move in order to start capturing additional business opportunities.
1: Welcome to Asia Growth Forecast by HubSpot, a podcast where we dissect successful sales strategies of fast-growing brands and show you how to grow your business in Asia.
2: We talk with sales leaders from brands like Nuum, Aspire, VMware, and Asana to uncover the secret sauce behind their sales motion and to understand what it takes to win the hearts and the minds of buyers in this region.
1: I am Romka Valkoviak.
2: And I'm Adarsh Norona, and together we lead sales for UpSpot across Southeast Asia and India. And we'll be your hosts this season. Now let's get into today's show.
1: Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to Asia Growth Forecast for another episode. And today, we're talking to Thomas Jeng who is the general manager of Singapore at Aspire and formerly also head of sales at Aspire. Um, if you have been keeping up with the startup and tech ecosystem in Singapore, you will know Aspire very, very well. It's one of the fastest growing fintech organizations in Southeast Asia, and their main goal is to become the end-to-end financial operation, operating system in Southeast Asian businesses. Since being funded in 2018, they have gone on the rise about $300 million from well known VCs such as Sequoia Capital, Mass Mutual Ventures, B Capital Group, and many others who have bought into their mission. Welcome, Thomas. We are really excited to have you today.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Amazing. Well, I'm looking forward to our discussion uh, today and uh, just for you guys uh, to know the topic that we are discussing is how to sell across diverse markets in Southeast Asia. I think it's a very big one and also a very important one because Southeast Asia is not just one country um, and it's quite complex to really to really make it work for organizations. So, Thomas, you have a very, interested career, very interesting career. You started Started your journey in strategy consulting uh, in BCG and Gartner, and then you have had one of the most uh, really interesting career steps I've heard of in our conversation the other day. So I was just uh, wondering if you would be willing to share with our audience today your career journey.
0: <laughs> sure, definitely. <laughs> uh, it has been a bit of a journey uh, to find what, what I actually am good at, I want to gravitate towards. But I actually originally went to my undergrad uh, for international politics, thinking I was going to become either a lawyer or a diplomat. Clearly, neither of those things happened. Uh, I started my career in strategy consulting at BCG. Uh, I eventually started to migrate from more analyst roles to client-facing roles at organizations like CEB and Gartner. Uh, CEB, for those of you on the line who are familiar with sales methodologies, pioneered the Challenger Sales Framework, uh, which is sort of one of the defining frameworks of my career so far as well. Uh, So after spending some time in the States, uh, working with teams and with executives there, I made it out here to Singapore for the first time, uh, where I covered financial institutions, working and advising uh, with commercial banking, private banking, and other sorts of financial institutions. Uh, And so that was a lot of fun. Uh, I was able to cover the region as a whole, uh, everything between Hong Kong and Australia, as I put it at the time. Eventually, before I went to business school, I did a stint in venture capital, and realized that there was a whole world out there of startups and of venture building, of creating new businesses as a whole. And it sort of ignited a passion in me that I wasn't getting from consulting uh, in a lot of ways. I could see immediate impact. I could see uh, the transformation of businesses and of organizations uh, almost overnight. Uh, And so I started to feel like that I could have a much greater impact and be more effective in any sort of intervention if I got into the startup world. And very naturally, uh, the obvious thing to do for me, uh, a little bit facetiously, was to start a startup myself uh, when I was in business school. Uh, So I went on a bit of a founder's journey. uh, And over the course of things, uh, met 500 Startups, now known as 500 Global, the international venture capital and accelerator organization. And from there, I did quite a bit of work in global business development, ran accelerators, ran different types of corporate programs throughout the world, especially out here in Asia. And I saw, I think, the the potential of the innovation digital economy out here and started to make my way back to Asia again. Uh, I had been based in Silicon Valley with 500 startups. And so I actually joined one of our portfolio companies called Nobi, uh, which is an EdTech SaaS company uh, trying to revolutionize uh, the creation of training experiences and learning experiences for individuals and professionals. I then eventually joined Aspire, uh, first as head of sales, uh, leading the sales development and account executive teams uh, before eventually becoming uh, general manager earlier this year. Uh, I now lead all of new customer acquisition uh, in Singapore and beyond.
2: Thomas, that that's a world tour that you just gave us and our audience, your experiences so far. Now, I right, really, really have to ask you this serious question to begin with, right? Now, you will have to dig deeper into all your experience to come up with the answer for this. So be prepared.
0: I'm ready. Let's do it. All
2: right. The question is, do you love durian or are you in the no love for durian camp?
0: (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I realize that this is a very polarizing debate and it's actually (laughs) a question I get fairly often. There's a durian dessert shop very close to our office and we pass Uh by it on the way to lunch on a regular basis. And uh, all of my my local uh, team members and colleagues will ask me if I like durian or not. Um, I would actually place myself in uh, as one of the rare few who's a moderate on on durian. (laughs) So uh, I actually spent part of my childhood in Taiwan and so did have exposure to durian. My mother and my now wife actually uh, both love durian quite a bit and they, they eat it whenever they can get it. For the fruit itself... I'm okay with it. I can tolerate durian. Uh, I, I don't find it disgusting. I also don't find it particularly delicious. But I do like durian-based desserts. Uh, any sort of crepe or cake with durian custard involved, I do enjoy.
2: Awesome. I think you met some really good friends, lots of them. And I'm I'm eager to see how many people ping you after this show <laughs> to just take you out in <laughs> Singapore. Uh, but good luck with that. Listen, we, we could talk about durian all day long, but I was so impressed with your journey that you just just described for us and the audience you're probably one of the rare leaders in the region for us who's seen success leading many sales teams not just in Southeast Asia but also leading it in the Silicon Valley and other parts of U.S. and the world. My first question to you honestly is what are the fundamental differences between selling and leading sales teams in markets like U.S.? versus the same in Southeast Asia what did probably nobody told you when you moved here uh, that you had to really learn the hard way?
0: yeah I think it's a really interesting question uh, because there is a quite a bit of hype around Southeast Asia I think people are starting to see the potential of the region uh, even back in the states but they are very different uh, places to work and very different places to sell I think as as with any uh, sort of commercial endeavor, it's best to start with the market uh, and and talk about that and then move into how it's different organizationally and and tactically uh, as well. So I think the first thing to keep in mind if you're comparing the United States and Southeast Asia is the U.S. is essentially one big unified market. Uh, You don't have to worry about borders or currencies uh, or languages in the U.S., Uh, You have something like 350 million people and growing uh, and companies coming to the U.S. from all throughout the world. Uh, On average, the organizations are also larger than they are in in Southeast Asia. Uh, Something that would be considered a mid-sized business uh, or even a large enterprise in uh, Southeast Asia might be just a mid-sized or small business uh, in the United States. And so because of the differences in population economics, a lot of that cascades down to customer behavior as well. We can get into this a bit more. But what I've seen in Southeast Asia is uh, because of the fragmentation of the economy, uh, the economics are quite different. The Mm. customers generally with smaller businesses are are less willing to pay uh, for enterprise Mm. software and other sorts of enterprise tools. It's a very different conversation in terms of pricing and of how you service uh, between Southeast Asia and the US. Of course, with, with that in mind, because you don't have that sort of big market, especially around large enterprise, the depth of selling experiences, especially in technologies, quite different between Southeast Asia and the US. Uh, the way I think about it, there have been generations of technology salespeople uh, in the U.S. You, you have, mm. you know, IBM and even companies before that uh, from decades ago, g- uh, cascading down to Microsoft, uh, to Google, to Meta, uh, to you know, world-class B two B organizations today, uh, and there's innumerable uh, such organizations in the U.S. Uh, but as we're all sort of familiar in Southeast Asia, there, there isn't, hasn't really been a comparable homegrown B2B uh, sales ecosystem, as so you just don't have as much depth of experience uh, in the talent pool here. And so from an organizational standpoint, a lot of the stuff that you might take for granted in the States in terms of frameworks and understanding uh, and just the familiarity uh, with sales processes, you might not get as readily uh, out here. And that translates into the sorts of tactics you have to take as a sales manager and a sales leader in terms of making sure the team is equipped, how you think about the market and all of that.
1: Amazing. There's a lot you said there that uh, that really made me think uh, a little bit more about what, what what advice would you give perhaps to sales leaders and marketing leaders who are listening to this, who want to break into Asian markets, how to make it work in such a heterogeneous market? Where to start?
0: <laughs> where where do we start? So I think in the startup world we very frequently talk about product market fit and if you're coming at this from a. US standpoint uh, if you find product market fit uh, with a particular market niche, uh, you can generally uh, be assured that the market niche will be of decent size. Uh, there'll always probably be several millions if not more of potential revenue in a given market niche simply because of the large size of the market. Uh, the same is not necessarily true uh, out here in Southeast Asia. And the way you would segment between different market niches needs to be much more precise and needs to be more thoughtful as well. Because you're not just slicing by company size or industry. You also now need to look at which country they're based in, currencies involved, the language as well. And selling in Singapore in particular means that you're likely to get a lot of offshore businesses. And so decision making may or may not occur in Singapore when you're trying to sell here. And so the, the first starting point I would have uh, in any conversation with a commercial or go-to-market leader as a whole is to be very, very precise in your segmentation. Uh, it's an exercise that we go through on almost a quarterly basis uh, on my team to decide which are the segments uh, to explore further, uh, to start to tap into further, or even drop if we're starting to run out of things in that segment. And we can talk a bit more about how we do that Uh, But generally speaking, we are trying to go uh, niche by niche uh, and trying to stack revenue over time rather than trying to take for granted that we have a product market fit across a large market for a horizontal product.
1: Interesting. So it looks like you're going through a prioritization exercise. How do you prioritize then?
0: So I generally look at two major dimensions. Uh, If you consider, uh, if you're coming to Southeast Asia, you hopefully will have found initial product market fit in a particular niche. Uh, From that starting point, I look at two different things. One is how different are the needs of the next segment, and then how different is the go-to-market for that next segment? And I essentially plot uh, on a two-by-two axis, like a lot of ex-consultants, where any given additional market niche will sit. Uh, so, you were sort of visualizing this, you would find a point on the map for any additional segment that you're looking after and see how far it is uh, from your existing point then you can sort of assess what sort of resources you need, what uh, what product changes, what marketing changes, positioning changes you need in order to access that segment effectively. And then we also look at the market opportunity. And so you can sort of visualize that as a bubble uh, on this map. Of course, you want to go for the bigger bubbles that are closer to your initial product market fit. But then a part of leadership is also to understand if there are much bigger bubbles further away, is it worth investing in those? Mm -hmm. And so I would say as a sales leader uh, in Southeast Asia, it's not enough to just do sales. You have to think pretty holistically about how the entire organization has to move in order to start capturing additional business opportunities.
1: Yeah, and that's so much more difficult to do as well when it comes to such such a heterogeneous market as we've been talking about in Asia. um, Would you be able to share perhaps what are some of the criteria that you're using, like the top three that you would be using to come up with that two
0: by two? I mean, we're really looking at probably more factors than that, but... As far as being a fintech organization, one of the first things we have to look at is actually regulation. Uh, We have to consider if we are able to uh, service a particular country, a particular nationality, or even a particular industry. Uh, So uh, those are essentially knockout criteria in a lot of ways. If we're simply not able to serve from a regulatory standpoint, we won't serve them uh, because, you know, there's no easier way or faster way to destroy a fintech business than to be non-compliant and to have the regular come down on you. Yeah. So yeah. We're, we're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. I think once we've gone past the regulatory assessment and we understand whether or not or to what extent we're willing to take on the risk or, or the, the burden of serving a particular category, uh, we can start to look at... Uh, the, the fit uh, with our existing product, right? Uh, what are the needs of, this, uh, of the organization involved or the category or segment involved? And do we have any sort of differentiated advantage there? Uh, is our value proposition a sound one? Beyond that, we then look at revenue opportunity. Uh, what is likely to be the opportunity size in any given deal uh, within this segment? And how well are we going to be able to tap that revenue uh, in the period of time that we're aiming for?
1: Amazing. I think a lot of our listeners are going to be very interested, going to be very different to many different industries. So we always should take into account what our industry dictates, Relief for an opportunity to become an opportunity to chase, and I think that's a that's a very important one. We we're all looking for you know silver bullet, the best possible one one size fits all, maybe all uh, almost type of a solution. But I don't think it's possible. I think it's yeah, possible I, to find. I, I don't think it is. Yeah,
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we'd all we'd all like to just be able to do the same thing over and over again and scale it to a billion dollars in revenue. But exactly. I, I think in Southeast Asia that's basically impossible.
1: Exactly that. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for that. I, I think that's uh, that's great.
2: Picking upon that point, uh, it is a known fact. many companies who were pretty famous, pretty successful in rest of the markets, when they came into Southeast Asia, they struggle a lot. One obviously, if you go with the mindset of one mold fits everything and you weave the entire leaven, different countries the top countries in Southeast Asia is just one nation then you are in trouble Mm -hmm. I think culturally Mm. there are so many nuances that are different from each other I can't believe in India somebody can do a selling for example without ever meeting the customer in person no matter (laughs) what
0: (laughs) and if you go
2: just one or two people into the meeting then you're really not doing justice to what they were expecting. So there are some small little things like that that you need to be careful about. What that drives for the companies who really want to invest in the region is the quantum of investment. What do you invest? What kind of teams do you invest? What kind of channels and distribution network do you go for? Because some of the Southeast Asian countries I know are really, really well served when there is local partners who can take your brand and create that market for you as an oem you might be very good very famous outside but southeast asia the credibility that the local partners bring in is humongous and you ride on that you piggy bank on that you help them you enable them and then slowly once you are much more of a leader in the market then you do those um, regional plans but yeah, one mold doesn't fit in Southeast
1: Asia. No, absolutely not. And I, I love what you said there, um, both Thomas and uh, and Adi. I think that uh, Southeast Asia, it makes Southeast Asia as well a very interesting place to be, knowing what is, what is the still uncovered potential and knowing as well that we can be more flexible here. Uh, when it comes to the go-to-market routes. And and that's what we've been looking at uh, here at HubSpot uh, as well. We're looking at segmentation, the traditional segmentation understood as dividing business to corporate, mid-market, and SMB, but also trying to be creative and trying to find our own best way within our product. To your point, Thomas um when it when it comes to creating that go to market and partners are extremely extremely important in in that journey because you know, especially at the at the very beginning of of the journey, for many organizations, they simply may not be able to, or not even want to, just yet, uh, invest into local teams to to address markets within that market. And this is where a partner organization comes in perfectly and fits in perfectly. Absolutely so-
0: agreed. Uh, mm-hmm. We actually. Uh, rely quite a bit on on partners ourselves mm-hmm. uh, to get the message out there, especially once we have found initial product market fit in a given niche.
1: Exactly. There you go. So that's a. I think that a lot of our a lot of our listeners will uh, will turn will turn to that as well. What was what was interesting for me as well, perhaps uh, from what you said, was those eleven countries, or or you know even more in some organizations that when talking about Asia, how did you guys solve it uh, in Aspa? in terms of segmenting your business and prioritizing your business?
0: Uh, first, you assume that we've solved it. Okay, uh,
1: <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> uh,
0: I mean, it, it's, it's, look, it's an ongoing discussion, yeah. uh, right? And, and as I mentioned, we're, we're at this basically every quarter. Um, I think about this in, in kind of two different dimensions when it comes to uh, Singapore itself, uh, which plays a bit of a unique role in the region as a business and financial hub. Uh, So speaking as a fintech business, we do serve local clients quite a bit. At the same time, we also are serving a lot of clients that are coming to Singapore from offshore uh, in order to do their banking and their financial transactions here. And so I think dividing uh, Singapore into those two layers is a helpful construct, right? Right. Uh, Because at the local level, you can do things like outbound, you can do uh, events, you can reach the market more easily. You can go and have coffee with someone uh, very simply. Um, And we do this on a regular basis. We have sales development teams, uh, we have partnerships teams, we have uh, essentially sort of a field marketing function that's doing a lot of events after hours or or during workday in order to reach these locally based customers. And then... The reality is, uh, if we're trying to tap the, the markets outside of Singapore uh, that are coming to Singapore offshore, it's, it's not really practically possible uh, or economical for us to try to go to China, to Hong Kong, to Vietnam, to you know, Japan, Australia, India with, with the same degree of resourcing that we have in Singapore. Uh, And frankly, because the use case is likely to be a little bit different for us, wouldn't be able to take the same motion uh, that we do in Singapore anyway. And so for those circumstances or for those uh, those market segments, the ones that are offshore, we actually rely much more on inbound marketing and much more on partners uh, that are in those markets and are doing go to market and kind of can take us with them uh, in in that way. And so uh, to come back to the original question, the way we have, quote unquote, solved the conundrum of Southeast Asia is to basically say, we'll do what's practically possible. Uh, what and to clearly identify what is economic for us from a cost of acquisition standpoint, and from a revenue opportunity standpoint. And we're going to try to match uh, the right go-to-market motion to the market segment. Uh, if we assume that we're trying to capture that market segment, and then for the moment, say no to everything else for the things we're working on at scale in the meantime which is what i would call our exploration motion we are using more or less outbound to try to validate additional market segments to see if we want to go into them in the fir- in the future and start to invest more resources there as well and so we sort of have these three parallel motions going on one is the the local direct sales driven you know more direct marketing driven motion on the ground we have this sort of offshore motion that's led by inbound marketing and with partnerships and this third exploration-driven motion. And so from an execution standpoint, that's really what we're doing uh, on a daily, a weekly, a monthly and quarterly basis.
2: And Thomas, I think you have now got the audience literally glued into this when you're explaining your strategies. Now I want to dig a little bit deeper into three major things. Now, yeah, you have to make those strategies the umbrella strategy and the broken-down regional strategies for these nations. But If we pick up three things, building the teams, setting the systems and having solid processes. If we pick these three as a separate bucket, how would you sync those strategies into these three? What is your experience? What is your advice?
0: Everything starts from the customer. Uh, and mm. a, a good understanding analysis of the customer and what their needs are across different dimensions is, is critical. And so the first thing I would look at is, first, uh, does the demand actually exist? Coming from a startup standpoint, it's basically impossible to create demand. The, the demand must mm. already be present in order for us to tap it. What Does the customer actually want to do what we hope that they want to do? And do they have uh, any sort of pain points with the alternatives that they're using right now? And are they willing to pay uh, for something different, uh, implicitly or in, indirectly or, or directly? Um, and so I think once you've established that and understand that the market opportunity does exist, you can go down mm. into how the customer needs to be sold to. Uh, mm. what are the channels by which you can actually address these customers? Um, and this is honestly, I think one of the more nuanced pieces, as you were mentioning earlier, Adi, uh, if an Indian customer will want to be sold differently Than a Singaporean customer will want to be sold differently than an Indonesian customer or a Malaysian customer, Um, and so even within the broad bucket of of say outbound sales or inbound sales or whatever, the way they want to interact with you is going to be different. Totally. And uh, trying to fight this, uh, trying to fight the underlying demand, or trying to fight the way they want to want to be sold is basically impossible. It's it's a fool's errand. You're going to just hit yourself against the wall. You're gonna you're gonna break your skull. Uh, It's you just shouldn't do it. Right. And so once you have this proper understanding of what the customer is trying to do and how they want to be sold to, then it actually becomes much simpler, uh, well, at least in concept, uh, to set up your organization in the right way. Because you, you, then you should figure out you know, what are the teams or what the, uh, that you need in place in order to generate the right motion. Uh, based on the customer's needs and their wants. And so for us, once we've sort of validated it, usually through some sort of outbound motion or or, or through an introduction to referrals and and that sort of thing, then we're trying to set up something more at scale based on our understanding of the customer.
2: This is something that's, that's close to my heart as well. So I'm, I want to dig a little bit deeper. Category creators, that topic is something that needs much more focus and understanding, especially for the audience who's there here listening to us. Category creators also have to create demand sometimes by themselves. Now, we all know for a OEM, it's harder to create a demand in a newer market. They want to rely on partnerships. All that is good. But sometimes you'll have to create it yourself the famous Stuart butterfield's essay right when he wrote we don't sell saddles here he wasn't sure whether something like slack would make a big impression uh, in the market but look where we are today so to understand the nuances of when should we really be a category creator when should we really rely upon creating demand through partners so i want to understand the nuances between these two
0: and it's an interesting question. So I would say, look, if we're, maybe, maybe I'll back up and provide a little bit of context on Aspire itself. Uh, so at the moment, we essentially have two major uh, solutions that we offer our customers. Uh, one piece is you could essentially call it uh, digital business accounts, digital multi-currency accounts, more or less digital banking, although from a regulatory standpoint, we're going to call it banking per se. Uh, But if you're a company that's just trying to do business, you need to hold currency, you need to transfer currency in order to make payments and receive payments, uh, that's more or less what we're providing for you. Uh, There's a second piece, uh, which we call loosely spend management, uh, but is essentially centered around the corporate card product. Mm-hmm. Uh, and don't get me wrong; it's it's not just a hunk of plastic. Uh, it is a whole software suite that allows you to manage the workflows and the financial operations that empower your business to do things. And these two solutions actually have very different audiences. On the part of the uh, the business accounts or the the multi currency accounts, we're obviously the most useful when a business is just getting started or when they're just entering Singapore. In, in, a, in a way, we actually are hitting the, the, the market demand that's been created by the traditional banks, uh, which yeah. are competitors, but actually are in some ways doing us a favor uh, by, through their own strategies. Uh, for those of you unfamiliar with this space, it's actually very, very difficult to open a bank account in Singapore uh, if you're coming in as a foreign-owned business or really anything that's a little bit off of the beaten path from the perspective of the traditional banks. And so they've left this uh, significant size of the market, uh, significant part of the market under addressed, uh, which to your point is sort of implicitly creates the demand for what mm-hmm. we're doing. Uh, and so we're able to counter position ourselves against the traditional banks by saying, hey, those guys don't want to serve you. Uh, sure, they have a lot more stuff they can theoretically do for you, but it's not really worth much if they won't open an account for you. And so by mm-hmm. counter positioning ourselves and saying, uh, here we are, we can actually serve you and we're happy to do so and we'll do it faster and easier Uh, Here we are. uh, Come to us. Right. (laughs) But because uh, those those companies are the customers that find that sort of value proposition, the most valuable are basically offshore. Uh, They're coming from Vietnam. They're coming from China, from Hong Kong, from India. Uh, There's there's no way we can really go reach them right directly Mm -hmm. or we could We spend a a Mm -hmm. ton on performance marketing and probably generate Mm -hmm. some hard results. And so we've partnered with things like corporate secretaries, professional services providers, corporate services providers that do actually do sell in those markets and help them set up shop in Singapore. Uh, And in this situation, we are relying on our partners to create demand for us or at the very least bring demand to us that has been implicitly created by the traditional banks.
1: Before we move into the next segment, here is a quick word from HubSpot. Is your software bill out of control? You're not the only one considering a breakup with your tech stack right now. Let me introduce you to HubSpot CRM. It's the best platform to speed up your sales and scale your business without blowing your budget. HubSpot's powerful CRM helps you automate tedious tasks, keep track of all your deals in one place and make sure your whole team has access to the same data. And best of all, you can try before you buy. No commitment, no hidden fees, not even a credit card is needed to sign up. Learn more at HubSpot.com.
0: I think, uh, I mean, coming from a a strategy consulting background, uh, there are a lot of great strategies that work on paper. There's a a, Mm -hmm. a beautiful storyline you can tell in slides or a spreadsheet or something, Uh, (laughs) but none of it's real until you actually talk to the customer and have contact with the market. So I would 100% advocate for just talking to customers and and making sure that you are running those market-driven experiments uh, to ensure that what you're thinking about is real. And uh, if you're able to do this with a fast enough velocity and with enough intentionality for, for learning how the market is thinking about things, you will uncover things that you wouldn't have expected.
1: Absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. That makes me think about a couple of other things as well that uh, that we've been doing at HubSpot. And I guess, you know, as well with uh, within our, uh, within our careers where bringing us back to that point, you, you, Adi, I think you made just a few minutes ago that we can be a little bit more creative here in Asia. We have availability mm-hmm. of partners, BPO organizations, for example, right? There are so many of them based here to pilot the different ways of going to market. And for example i know of many organizations who are delegating their uh very small business for example to either a bpo or to online or to or to channel a partner entirely they uh, and they see a lot of value there as well because that's really is a win-win you've got uh, you've got that segment being looked after really well but also you've got you just gained so much time And productivity from your sales organizations, from in-house sales organizations. So that's one of the most common ones that I see is being run in Asia and works really well where I think might not actually work very well elsewhere. So that's an interesting one. Shifting a little bit uh, gears, I'd love to, you know, we're salespeople here, (laughs) Uh, we love forecasting. So what's your forecast? What is the number one thing that is going to change the most, you believe, over the next decade in Asia when it comes to uh, running business here?
0: Uh, if, I, if I really knew, uh, I should probably go and be an investor instead. Uh, but uh, with that said, I think uh, there are a few things that are likely to shift. Uh, one is uh, we do expect, I and mean, we ourselves have this thesis, that uh, there will be increasing adoption of digital tools uh, throughout the, the ecosystem, throughout the market as a whole. Uh, it's pretty much inevitable uh, as new technologies come out and they're able to provide just a simply better experience than what's being used today, that adoption will increase. Uh, I think there's some questions around there in terms of you know, pricing and business models and, and who exactly will be able to afford or have access to these tools. But I think the increasing adoption of digitalization and of digital tools uh, is going to be a a major theme uh, going forward. I think the second piece is that we will continue to see the region grow economically and we will see even greater globalization in some ways of the region. We have a front row seat to this at Aspire because we are in financial services, right? So we every day see the flow of businesses coming to Singapore in particular, Uh, and Southeast Asia in general, uh, to do business here. I think the opportunities in the region are being recognized uh, by American companies, by Chinese companies, uh, by Vietnamese companies, Australian companies. And so I think we're likely to see an increased uh, diversity in the types of business that are operating in Southeast Asia. And then I think a third piece, uh, and this pertains more to the startup and the tech ecosystem, Uh, from a talent perspective, I think you're going to start seeing more and more depth of talent. Uh, You you have people uh, in the current wave leaving organizations like Google, Meta, Stripe, taking the skills that they've learned, the best practices that they've cultivated uh, to startups. Uh, Eventually, as this next wave of startups exit or or collapse, as the case might be, uh, Mm -hmm. you'll have people going to the next generation in the next wave. And so I think in the next 10 years, you're likely to see uh, probably several iterations of this cycle, uh, which means in a decade or so, there will be much greater depth of bench uh, and much more maturity of talent in the region for technology businesses overall.
1: I think there is a lot in there as well. We know that just, you know, it's a blanket, Uh, obviously, you know, it's a blanket stat, but roughly right now it's what, maybe 20%, maybe 15% of the revenue that um, organizations draw from from Asia. Do you believe that that revenue uh, participation of Asia and that pie chart uh, is going to increase in the future?
0: I think it's already happening. So if you look at consumer businesses, uh, a lot of the growth is happening uh, based on demographic trends, right? And and nowhere else do you see the rise of a middle class that's growing in both income as well as number as you do in Asia. And so as the B2C and consumer businesses grow, they will need more tools uh, to run their businesses here. Uh, which means that it will eventually cascade to the B2B side or the enterprise side as well, right? And so I think it's basically inevitable and it's already happening.
1: It's interesting. Well, it's a place to be. Asia is a place to be.
2: <laughs> yeah, totally agree. And I can I can sense the excitement that is there in the businesses. And we are also, I think, having countries which have so much of population. So we tilt the scale towards us when it comes to consumerism. The younger population, the age of Predominantly younger population is becoming severely high here, which means that's how we we will roll in the coming months. And customer experience becomes the core focus with adoption of tools and technologies and platforms that are of, that are there for businesses to adopt. At the end of the day, you will win against your competition based on how well you know your customer, how well you serve them. And that's the core of it, and that doesn't change, whichever region
0: we are in. It? Yeah, absolutely. Excellent.
1: What I what I think is uh, is is worth adding as well that that change will require sales to be yeah. different, and that requires yeah. sales leaders uh, to be different as well uh, to lead them through uh, through that change. And I think that's a, that's a big question that uh, that organizations probably or we all should be really thinking about who we need to become as leaders to be able to enable that. Any thoughts on that, guys? That, that is a brilliant point.
0: Uh, I think one interesting characteristic of, of operating in Asia is that distributed teams are, are pretty much inevitable. Uh, mm-hmm. And if you're trying to rely on let's say older school tools uh, to keep distributed teams engaged, it's it's. Pretty much, uh, I won't say it's impossible, but it's very, very difficult, right? You, and as a sales leader, if you have people in like five different countries trying to call all them or set up a conference call in real time uh, to make sure that you know, you're know you sharing information it is, is great. I think it's a starting point, but it's really not adequate if you're trying to move very quickly. From a management standpoint, that means that we should, I think, collectively be investing a lot more in technology tools. Uh, And so at Aspire, we do use HubSpot for any sort of thing, uh, pretty much across the entire customer-facing journey. Uh, Everything from prospecting to support um, as a source of truth for everyone. I think it's absolutely critical that everyone's looking at the same dashboards and has the same sets of information about the customer. Mm -hmm. Um, It it ensures that you're talking about the same thing, the same people, and the same issues. I think it's a starting point. And then from there, uh, we. With that common understanding of the customer, you can then try to figure out how to be more coordinated and start to become more sophisticated in your approach for for reaching and serving the market. Uh, So internally, other tools uh, we use include Slack, uh, which allows us to share information. We use Notion. Um, We use, you know, all sorts of internal communication tools, you know, the Google suite and so on, uh, all of which enables us to uh, ensure that there is a consistent and shared flow of information throughout the organization. Uh, speaking yep. from personal experience, uh, almost nothing is more painful when you have different parts of your team moving at different speeds with different information. Mm-hmm. And it just creates enormous stress on a personal level mm-hmm. and for different team members as well. And so to that end, I mean, building on top of the technology, uh, it's not to say that technology itself is the silver bullet. As you've already established, there are no silver bullets in business, especially in this part of the world. And so a lot of the, the more human elements, the, the processes and almost the rituals that you're trying to inculcate become critical as well, right? Um, so one thing that, that we do uh, at Aspire, at least on my teams, is to have a, a weekly wins session. So one part of the weekly town hall that I do is to have everyone go around and share uh, some insight that they've gained or uh, one of the things that they're most proud of uh, from the past week. And as the team grows, it's taking up more and more time, but it's been quite valuable for people to feel like they are a part of a team that they can celebrate each other's wins, whether they're in, in Vietnam in Singapore in Malaysia, elsewhere. So they actually are pulling in the same direction, and again, not saying that that necessarily is the only way to do things, uh, or is or is even a great way to do things. Uh, but uh, the rituals and the human elements, the relationships, uh, remain critical, uh, even as you're relying more uh, heavily on on softer tools and technology tools. Um, True. Yeah. So I think as sales leaders, it does behoove us to keep both halves of, of that equation in mind.
2: I think the last piece for sales leaders there on the same thread is you should understand buying and the buyer behavior is also changing in the region. There is a lot more information at hand. People are more aware before they even come to talk to you, they're much more aware of what you're trying to talk to them. So as sales leaders and sales reps, it's important to leverage these tools and technologies that you have, be much more, come across much more intelligent, much more in sync with what is expected. And these meetings are no longer just knowledge sharing sessions. So it's how you process the the entire rhythm of that business in those meetings. So you need to be really intelligent to cut short the duration of the sales Leverage your tools to listen to some of your team members' calls and fix those efficiencies, isn't it? So, leaders have to evolve because buyers are evolving, market is evolving. And the excitement in Southeast Asia is amazing for us for the future.
0: It's definitely true that you can't just show up and do a presentation and expect them to buy something anymore. That, mm-hmm. Those totally. days are
2: gone. Yeah. gone. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Thomas, today was probably one of the closest topic uh, for the viewers and sales leaders of this region. We were really, really looking into what frameworks and structures and strategies that work to handling such a diverse um, region like ours uh, in Southeast Asia. I think just to wrap up some of the major points that I am taking home is if you are a global brand looking to crack a market uh, or a local brand who is looking to expand into other countries within SEA, then I think first thing, don't believe a single mold can fit all. Be aware of the cultural needs. Be aware of the needs of those markets which differ from each other. Your demand generation has to be led with via profitable partnerships and strategic partnerships creating demand on your own is a tad difficult Um, you rely on um, a better distribution strategy there I think you should align systems and processes and build teams to be in sync with uh, such a segmentation strategy if you have one and then like all three of us said pilots experiments and projects are going to be like breathing here in this region so rinse learn and repeat and I think a bit of being an entrepreneur really helps as a leader here and be aware of the market and fundamentally keep customer as the core focus, be their advocate, serve the needs and be ready for the changes that are there. Adopt the tools and technologies available to you, but keep customer experience to the core. And if you really want to know where to invest, follow Thomas. When he becomes an investor, we'll know what portfolios that he is chasing. So that's where you put your money. What do you say?
0: I could have said it better except for that last part. Not sure I agree with that one. <laughs>
2: <laughs> awesome. It was such a pleasure talking to you, Thomas. Ramka, those were wonderful insights.
0: It's, it's been a pleasure. I uh, really enjoyed speaking. So,
1: Thank you so much, Thomas. It's great yeah. to have you. Really appreciate it. Yeah, definitely.
0: Thanks for tuning into
1: HubSpot Asia growth forecast today. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever you're listening to this show. Oh, and one more thing. If you found the discussion valuable, share it with at least one more person who you think would enjoy listening to it. That's it for this episode. And we will see you real soon on Asia growth forecast.